The seas are deep, but that doesn't keep them away. The things below the surface. You're watching Darkness Prevails, the best place to share your creepy true stories with the world, because this world is a strange one. In this video, you're about to hear allegedly true stories from real people like yourself. Stories of the unexplainable things that happen in the middle of the ocean. Sightings of creatures that have crawled from the deepest depths of the oceans and hauntings from those lost in the abyss. These are deep sea horror stories. If you want to appear in a future video, I'm looking to read stories about state park encounters. You can send your story to me with the links in the description or donate just one buck a month at patreon.com slash darkness prevails to keep us scooting along. Real quick, here are my five favorite early comments from my previous full video. Creepsta says, is it still catfishing if you're actually talking to a catfish? Well, yes, if you're planning on eating that catfish or taking it out on a date, which I don't recommend. Bryson with Vlogs says, can you please do black-eyed children sightings? Maybe, and I read that in the worst way possible. Cassandra Viscar says, I'm starting to have nightmares. Well, that makes three of us. <laughs> Stop it, Scott, you're embarrassing me. Anyway, Amber says, I saw the notification on Facebook and I came straight over. It's good to know that my social media peeps are still popping on over, thank you. And Dory the Potato says, haha, no one would catfish me, I ain't cute. I'll have you know, Dory, that I would hook you so hard and fast your skin would fly off. Now, let's dive into the ocean and see what finds us. Number one, Something Beneath, submitted by Peter W. I'm a marine biologist and a retired deep sea diver. I know this will sound unusual, but I have a story to tell you, and I think you need to hear it because no one else will. No one else wants to believe me, not even those that saw it firsthand. In 2007, while working for a small deep sea salvaging corporation, my crew and I saw something beneath an oil rig. What was it, you ask? We don't know, nor do we want to. But you might. In our field, we are often hired by local authorities, and even sometimes international ones, to help with missing person cases. A few weeks ago, I forwarded a transcript request to one of my colleagues, hoping they still had enough pool in the business to net me the information I needed. Reluctantly, they agreed on the terms that I don't contact them beyond that point. After waiting relentlessly for half a month, a beige envelope arrived on my doorstep this morning. It contained a yellow piece of paper with bold black writing, and here's what it said. I urge you to read it carefully. On December 9th, 2007, Singaporean citizen Yi Wei, age 34, affiliation, drilling, family, not applicable, went missing while working as a maintenance worker on an offshore oil rig. Due to the nature of the disappearance and that he was not found aboard the rig, Wei was presumed dead with cause unknown. With suspicion of foul play after the report was put through by a coworker, 
the Singaporean government hired, redacted, to assist in locating the body if it was still present beneath the rig. In cooperation with the Singaporean government, redacted, deployed three divers to the offshore jackup rig, Arbidrill 70, design designation Keppelfels Kefels B-Class. The rig was operating at a depth of 400 feet, more than what the team would usually work with, but not beyond their capabilities. The drilling depth of the rig was 30,000 feet. Team three, designated T3, deployed on December 12th after arriving in Singapore. Standard procedures were conducted without error or issue. One of the divers who went missing was later confirmed to have been untrained at depths beyond 300 feet, which may have contributed to their potential fatality. After deployment, the team scoured the ocean floor around the drilling rig and made several reports to their topside service team, Team 2 or designation T2, via low frequency radio. The team reported noises coming from the ocean floor, but became anxious and had trouble describing the sounds. Topside gave the order to continue the investigation under the assumption that the noises were being caused by the drilling mechanisms beneath the sand and rock. T3 continued with the task of locating any remains and any potential signs of foul play. One of the coworkers suggested a weight may have been tied to Wei's legs, but the proposal was dismissed as a baseless conjecture. 30 minutes into the dive, T3 resumed their reports of noises coming from the ocean floor, increasing in amplification as time went on. T3 made a request to be immediately extracted from the water. Topside began preparations for decompression and organized surfacing procedures. Reports from both teams vary at this point and neither scenario has been confirmed. Senior diver Davis, one of the divers from T3, reported that the noises were still intensifying and the vibrations became physically distressing. Radio contact was lost within 30 to 40 seconds of the report. Topside became concerned that the rookie diver Keller would attempt to surface prior to decompression and run the risk of hypoxia. T2 continued to obtain radio contact with the submerged divers, but instead resorted to deploying an auxiliary diving assistant to continue with the decompression procedure. Divers, redacted and redacted, both reached the decompression chamber. The rest is classified. That was it. That was how it ended. I tipped my coffee into the sink and immediately grabbed the document and I began to transcribe it into my desktop, just in case. I was determined to put together the rest of the story. If the report wouldn't say what had to be said, then I would. And this is why I'm writing to you now. The report was fairly accurate, I will admit. Yi Wei was confirmed missing on December 9th, but nobody really knew if it was foul play, an accident, or something else. The company I worked with often did pretty standard salvage procedures. Cars that had fallen into lakes, sunken vessels, and even derelict boats to be detonated. But, like I mentioned before, we also often worked with local and sometimes international governments on legal cases. Hence why we were helping with a potential murder case. You already know a lot of the story, 
so I'll cut to the part you probably want to hear. We were underwater at a pretty ridiculous depth. To put it into perspective, Everest reaches 29,035 feet. This drill, just beneath the surface, would go on for another 30,000 feet, on top of the 400 feet between the sand and the water's surface, and much of that depth was drilled into the earth. We were right down there at the ocean floor, nearly as far as humans could dive. You never really get used to the sensation at being at such incredible depths, having an endless abyss of darkness all around you, knowing you can't swim to the surface because if you do, the pressure would end you. There's such a heavy feeling of reliance on the surface team to get you out of there that you begin to feel a little helpless. The noise didn't help. We were searching around the metal supports of the oil rig structure, basically four massive pylons thrust into the ocean floor to hold the surface platform up. It was ridiculously daunting and large under the water, with rust caked all over the surface of the metal and more algae than I thought I'd ever have to see. A couple small schools of fish circled us as we scoured the place from, well, bottom to bottom. That was when the noise began. It was subtle at first, and it wasn't just one sound. It was like a mix between a roller door opening and a mesh sliding door opening and closing loudly. But at the same time, it was so distant and quiet, but it didn't go away. T32, Mike, do you hear that? I remember asking my co-diver, Mike Davis. I was using my flashlight to search the sand for any source, but the visibility was so poor, I could barely see 50 feet ahead of me. It still sounded incredibly distant, like it was far, far beneath the surface. The drill? Keller, our rookie diver, asked. That's at least another 30,000 feet down below us. I continued scouring the floor, and the sound started to grow louder, and yet the volume remained the same. It was growing closer. Radio topside, this is giving me the heebie-jeebies. I proceeded to oblige the command, and radioed in to our surface team that there was an unconfirmed noise originating from beneath the surface. After a little while, they gave the order to continue our search. Reluctantly, we did so, until the noise grew again and again and again. It had slowly turned from two separate, smaller sounds into a single, loud noise, like an air raid siren screeching at us from below the depths. It continued to rise closer and closer, and we could feel the ocean floor shaking what the? Call surface again, now, Wesker. I cursed and made the call to ready the decompression chamber. We were leaving then and there, whether they agreed to do it or not. The noise continued to roar towards us, and the sand was shifting with its vibrations. My first thought was that the drill beneath the surface had broken and was coming up towards us, but it didn't take me long to disregard that as utter nonsense. Every potential option ripped through my mind as we swam upwards as far as we safely could while waiting for the diving bell to be delayed. The noise grew closer and closer until I was certain it was about to burst straight out of the sand. Okay, that's as high as we can go. Stop here. 
I shouted to my two co-divers, knowing this was the limit before hypoxia could set in. I calculated it in my head, but checked my depth meter to be sure. Are you kidding me? Whatever that is down there, it's not something I'm going to stick around to say hi to. If you try and surface, you know exactly what's going to happen to you. The noise was just below the surface. Its rising and falling, blood-curdling screech made my stomach drop. I checked my sub-to-surface radio for replies, but static was the only noise coming through. They should have deployed the bell and confirmed by that point. Our inter-team comms were still operational, though. I'll take my chances, Keller shouted over the radio. I cursed at him, but the noise drowned out any sound I could make. It was so close, I could practically reach out and touch the sound. Its vibrations tore through the water and sent ripples towards us, outwards in all directions. I saw the silhouette of a diver resuming his strokes upwards before I shut my eyes as my head throbbed from the sound. It was at that point that I realized I couldn't even hear Davis talking anymore. Eventually, I must have blacked out. When I woke up, I was topside, being assessed by the auxiliary diver after decompression. In my hazy confusion, I never found out if Keller or Davis survived. Nothing significant happened from there, except a stern talking to from our dive commander. I was never to speak of this again to anyone, or consequences would be dire. That was it. That was my anticlimactic conclusion. Whatever happened while we were out cold, whatever they found down there had to be the rest of that report. And despite the cost, I need to know. I need to find out what is below the surface. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters, and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Number two, The Backwatch, submitted by Emily W. Before I begin, you need to know that I've been in the military for 12 years. I've seen my fair share of creepy things. Most of the buildings and ships are downright haunted. I've been seeing ghosts on and off since I was a child, though they were more common when I was a child. Not as much now, thank God. This story took place miles off the coast of South America. We were on deployment, so I'm not going to say what ship I was on or when this took place. Now, the ship that I was on wasn't a stranger to ghost stories, and most of my shipmates would gossip about their own encounters. I didn't believe it at first, because even though I saw things when I was younger, it never bothered me and I tried to explain away most of them. And besides, many of these stories they told were just repeats from other ships. Before I get into my encounter, let me put something into perspective for you so you can understand what makes these encounters more creepy and unnerving than it would be on land. You're on a swaying hunk of metal of a ship in the middle of the ocean far from the coast. You have no place to run Nowhere to hide, nowhere to escape. You are trapped in a metal tin can with nothing but the dark waters as your escape. So a ship works on watches, basically shift work. I'm not going to get much into it because it will take too long. Just know I was on the mids watch or what we call the back watch. I was standing on the back of the ship, life boy sentry. I think that explains itself. I was 20 minutes into my shift, and it was quiet, save for the ocean waves which were lulling me into a relaxed state. I was leaning on the bulwarks, railing but it's fully enclosed, watching the stars and just thinking about my life. Somewhere in my trance state, I felt unnerved, cold, and just genially creeped out. I don't know why, but my body shifted into fight or flight mode. I turned around and froze. There, standing by the hatch leading into the ship, was a shadow. It was shaped like a man, but it was distorted, and no, it wasn't because it was dark. There was red lighting back there. At that time of night, and knowing how our other department runs the shifts, no one should have been back there. That end, I didn't hear the hatch open, and it's not a quiet entryway at all. It's a big, heavy metal door. I would have heard banging, metal on metal. I stared at the thing, and I couldn't move. My heart was pounding. Then I managed to take a step back, my foot hitting the bulwarks. I was trapped. Freaking out, panic nearly had me over the side. This shadow man, or whatever it was, didn't move. We were in a standoff, 
and if that thing charged at me, I knew I would meet a watery end. For what felt like a lifetime, the thing shifted like it was raising a hand. My heart stopped and my vision turned black. I felt I was going to die. But the thing slid, not walked, slid behind a big rope reel. That reel was huge and held our housers, lines used to secure the ship to the jetty. I was still frozen. It was the sound of a wave crashing that snapped me out of it. I took a breath that I didn't know I was holding and forced myself away from the railing. I don't know what possessed me, but I quickly went to the hauser reel. To this day, I don't know why I did it, but I had to look behind it. There was nothing. I remember pulling away, backing away, until I was back against the railing. My eyes stayed on the reel, heart pounding with fear like I've never felt before. It seemed to choke me. That sense of being watched, it was suffocating me, and I felt trapped. I stayed like that until my relief showed up. I quickly turned over my gear to him and practically ran towards the hatch leading into the ship, into the light. I wish that was the end of it, but over the years I was on the ship, I saw that shadow in different parts of it. One night, as I slept alone in the mess, the sleeping quarters, I woke up. My heart was racing, fear had me shaking. Through my curtain, I saw it, that thing again, that shadow man. I suppressed a scream and just closed my eyes. I chanted under my breath, go away, go away, please go away. Seconds and minutes passed, and then I opened my eyes. The shadow was now gone. I had curled into a ball in my small bunk, still shaking. I didn't go back to sleep, and that wasn't the only time it happened, nor was I the only one to have seen it. That ship is now decommissioned, and I hope the Shadow Man went down with it. There are things out there. This is but one encounter. I know for sure the ocean is a dangerous place, more dangerous than you can imagine, for reasons you don't even know. Number three, a final cry, submitted by Hannah F. I'm in the United States Coast Guard and used to be stationed in Oregon, where I'm actually from. Being on the Pacific, there are trials and tribulations that your average human being would break down from just at the thought of it. For example, we once rescued the broken down body of a three-year-old little girl whose mother threw her off the bridge because of her schizophrenia. I've pulled more lifeless, waterlogged bodies out of the ocean than I care to admit, but someone has to do it. The city where I was stationed is steeped in local legend from ghostly figures standing on the massive bridge 
peering over the side, like they're debating whether or not their ethereal body should take the plunge, probably once more. Spirits on the boardwalk and hitchhiking specters are also pretty standard town lore. However, I had my own brush with the final calls for help from someone beyond the grave. Back in 2013, when I had first joined the Coast Guard, we got a mayday call from a sailing vessel that was making its way from San Diego to Seattle. This was in November. The coast was a breeding ground of bad weather and awful life choices, especially for sailboats, which were notorious along the West Coast. So, like any good guardsman, we loaded up in our motor lifeboats and headed towards the man with the now capsized vessel. It was 10 nautical miles away from our bay. However, when we arrived, there was nothing but debris. A couple of coolers, a life ring, and some rigging were the only things left of the sailboat, and because of the incoming hurricane-force storm, we had to turn around and head for home empty-handed, vowing that we would send helicopters and boats out as soon as the storm had passed. However, we knew that the chances of survival from such a circumstance were zip to nil, since the waters were no more than about 48 degrees Fahrenheit. With heavy hearts, we turned around and headed back for land. There's always that what if question in your head that makes you wonder, but at the end of the day, you know you can't go back in time so later that evening, I'm sitting in our communications center, monitoring the marine band radios, talking with my boss and best friend, when suddenly, a voice comes over the radio, and to this day, typing about it or even thinking about it gives me chills. Help! Mayday! I don't know where I am. The voice was so quiet, it sounded like it was coming from the bottom of a well. It didn't help that the storm was probably interfering with the radio. I picked back up, asking the vessel what his position and nature of distress were. There was never any response. My boss then came into the room and replayed that message. Now, on our electronic chart, we can pull up the caller's position. That's what he did. I watched as his eyes grew wide with horror, and he pointed at the chart. There was the sailboat's last known position before he had went down to rest on the bottom of the ocean floor. I can say with certainty that this was the man's final cry for mercy before the great Pacific swallowed him up for the last time. We searched for the man for 72 hours with lifeboats, helicopters, and local police and fire departments, and never found any other sign of the man. I've been in the service for over five years, and this is still the scariest thing I've ever had to deal with in my life. Number four, the water's shadow submitted by Lizard Mom. I live on Long Island. I'm surrounded by ocean 
so I know my marine animals. I've seen ducks, geese, swan, plovers, and gulls. I know the local fish species, and I've seen seals and sea lions. But this was something different. A chilly day last spring, my sister, Sophie, and our younger neighbor, Henry, went down the street from our house. We live on the corner of two streets, and down that street was a small portion of beach. Our little spot was a cute place to be in the summer, but the cold spring fog made the place a little more eerie. But I was used to eerie, or so I thought I was. As all three of us headed down the sloping road, the sand in sight and the pathway clear, we started to think of how many rocks we could find that day. It was a hobby of mine, and the kitties had just wanted to be cool like their teenage role model. The sand dusted our shoes, and we knew we had to start our awkward trek down the rocky terrain to get to the beach. A harshly snappy wind hit us all at around that time. With your head down, looking intently at green and brown and blue rocks that could break under your feet at any moment, you don't really notice much. I was only alerted to a movement in the water by Henry. A small black mass was splashing in the water, only a few feet away from the shoreline, but it disappeared pretty fast. My first thought was, it's only a duck, and I brushed off Henry's questions. Ducks often dove underwater to eat, and it's no big deal. That is, until we saw it again. A sharp black figure. It looked almost like a seal had bashed its head in on a rock, but the noise it made sounded nothing like seals. Not the ones I've seen, anyway. The noise was like bubbles, but bubbles blown into a whistle, high-pitched, short, and rhythmic. We weren't sticking around to hear it any further. All three of us went bolting up the rocks, and we didn't stop until halfway up the sloped street again. The only reason we did stop at all was because the noise had become deafening. I moved instinctively to grab Sophie, only to frantically grip onto nothing I instantly turned on my heels, my head whipping around way too fast. My little sister was still on the rocks. Her head was pointing straight at the water. The creature we saw floating about 1,000 feet away. The noise continued still, though it was now getting quieter. Both Henry and I reached out to grab Sophie, dragging her off the rocks, but she wouldn't budge. I have to go, see you later, I love you. Sophie took 10 steps towards the water and my sisterly instinct said to shove her as hard as possible. She woke up in a way, startled by the sudden movement. I was almost too scared to let her know what was going on, so we all just booked it home. As moms are, our mother was skeptical, but the genuine fear and adrenaline running through our veins prompted her to get blankets nonetheless. We were all bundled up. Later in the day, Henry went home, and I spent the rest of the evening trying to calm down, trying to draw and understand the creature that had somehow hypnotized my sister, tried to lure her into the water. 
And number five, the day at the beach, submitted by Anonymous. I want to state that I never actually saw this thing, but if you'll just stick with the story, you'll understand why that's even more important. When I was about 14, my uncle and aunt lived near enough the Gulf of Mexico that when my family went to visit, we would all get on my uncle's little boat and ride around to the beachfront area near Gulf Shores, Alabama. There was an area that was open enough for a small boat to pull right up into the beach where we were hoping to swim and have a picnic for the day. Now, before I get to the meat of this story, I want to state that we'd never seen anything out of the ordinary in our boat trips before. The weirdest thing we'd ever seen was a huge bunch of jellyfish during spawning season. So, my aunt, uncle, mom, and myself all got ready to pull around to this little sandbar for a day of sun and fun. My uncle dropped the anchor out far enough so that he didn't have to run aground and we girls all bailed out to head for the beach. There were a few sunbathers there already, but it was by no means crowded, which is why we had chosen the spot. Immediately, a freak wave slams into us out of nowhere, and the boat nearly runs us all over. Huge waves start battering the boat, pushing it toward the shore. My uncle hopped out of the boat, and the four of us together wrestled against the waves to keep the boat from being beached miles away from home and effectively stranding us. Somehow, we succeeded in getting the boat back out to calm water. My mom, who suffered with low blood sugar, started having the most inopportune low blood sugar moment possible, nearly fainting right then and there on the spot. My uncle threw us a bottle of grape juice from the boat, but the three of us girls were stuck on the beach after having to wait for mom to get her strength back. My uncle yelled that we should circle the beach and find an easy place to swim to him. Only there was no place like that. It was either shallows too choppy for the boat or open water. So being strong and independent like we were, my aunt and I carried my mother between us and we swam out to the boat. We shoved her up into the boat quickly as she's a small person, but my aunt, who is a slightly larger lady, was having trouble getting her feet onto the ladder. By that time, we were in very deep water, far from the beach due to the current, and I was trying to hang on to the boat while also helping my aunt get aboard. Later, my uncle told me we were in water that was over 30 feet deep and that's when I felt it. I've got chills right now writing this, having to recall that memory, because what grabbed me, it was a hand. I know it was a hand, because I could feel each of its five fingers wrapping around my ankle. I know how human skin feels. I am one, after all, even after it's gotten all pruney from being in the water for too long. Yet, this was different. It was rough and scratchy, kind of like the skin of a shark. The fingers had this odd suction feeling, 
like they were more octopus tentacles, but not as thick. I could feel my skin being suctioned, but that wasn't all. I could feel long nails digging into my flesh further from the fingertips. The grip wasn't too hard. In fact, it wasn't trying to pull me. It felt more curious, like trying to decide what my foot was, or maybe what it wanted to do with it and the rest of me. When I felt it, I got super still, and I didn't move my leg, afraid I'd make whatever this thing was angry. I wanted to scream, but sometimes the fear is just so overwhelming that noise doesn't happen. I know now that whatever survival instincts were keeping me from going insane in that moment and kicking like crazy may have saved my life. My aunt finally struck purchase and began to pull herself up from the water, and it would soon be my turn to be out of it. I felt the blood drain from my face as another hand latched on to my ankle. The fingers tightened, tensing slowly for what I was coming to realize would be a pull down into the water. I wasn't a champion swimmer in the slightest, but I could handle myself if I needed to. Whatever this was, I knew it outclassed me in the water. My aunt's feet finally left the ladder, and my uncle reached down to help me up next. I gripped the ladder rung with all my strength, preparing to fight for my life against the thing below me, or to just be ripped down into the depths. Either way, I was absolutely terrified. The hands around my ankle must have felt me resisting their hold, because the grip suddenly loosened ever so slightly, and then, miracle of miracles, they pushed upward to boost me out of the water. Shaking with relief and terror, I tumbled into the closest seat, and my uncle drove us home, all of us too exhausted for any sort of swimming or picnics after such an episode. I never did tell my family or anyone what I had felt that day. I mean, who would ever believe that kind of story? I sometimes don't know if I even truly believe what happened, but then I remembered the utterly inhuman feeling of those hands and how I was sure they would have dragged me to my death. I also remember that once we were all safely back in the boat, I watched for a swimmer to come up for air for some sign of a person having helped me, but there was none. No one on that beach had even bothered to ask if we were okay. It had just been us. This makes me mad now when I think about it. There was someone who had, apparently, decided that we needed a little helping hand. Even though the thought of what that someone may have been terrifies me, I'm glad that one-time meeting went the way it did, but I do wonder what the creature was that crawled from the deeper depths of the sea. The oceans remain vastly unexplored. Unlike most of our lands, water is very much three-dimensional. There is a surface stretching miles, and below it, thousands of thousands of feet of depth. 
most of it too dark for human eyes to see, let alone too heavy for humans to explore. Maybe one day we will have everything we need to light up the dark down there, but sometimes it's better for your own sanity to keep the lights off. Good night. Be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe if you enjoyed the video. And don't forget to send us your true scary stories with the links in the description. Also, if you can, think about pledging just $1 a month to my Patreon at patreon.com slash darknessprevails, or come buy some creepy cool clothes at morbidmonsters.com. We've got Darkness Prevails shirts, monster shirts, and shirts sporting the awesome slogan, this world is a strange one. Anyway, for all those still listening, stay safe out there and stay creepy. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big